Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. And if you can believe it, this is the 14th week of our time together studying the faithfulness of God in the life of Abraham from Genesis 12, 1 through uh, this chapter 25 today. And in that time, uh, from Genesis 12 to 25, we've covered a period of 100 years. 100 years have gone by. Abraham was 75 when God called him into the land of Canaan and gave him the promises of chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, where it says this, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now I'm sure you'll agree that a lot can happen over a period of a hundred years. A lot of things can happen, and we didn't get to see all of the ups and downs We didn't get to see all of the ebbs and flows of Abraham's life over all those years. But God did reveal specific things to us for our good. We got to see Abraham's move to Canaan, his temporary move then to Egypt, where he told Pharaoh that Sarah was his sister. We saw Abraham and Lot separating because of their uh, their wealth. They were unable to stay in the same household and they had to separate out. Uh, we met the priest and king named Melchizedek and saw Abram worship there with him. Uh, we saw God count righteousness to Abraham by faith. Abraham then got a second wife and had a baby boy since God's plans seemed to be failing. Abraham later was willing to circumcise himself and every male in his household. He also tried to ask God not to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah in order to save Lot. After which, even after Abraham saw the region literally going up in smoke, Abraham told King Abimelech that Sarah was his sister. Twice that happened. After which, 90-year-old Sarah, when she was saved back from Abimelech by his doing, 90-year-old Sarah got pregnant and gave birth to Isaac to laughter, his name means. Abraham followed up that miracle baby and promise kept by being willing to obey the Lord, even if it meant sacrificing Isaac, which we learned it didn't. It didn't mean that. God provided, didn't he? And then Abraham mourned the loss of his wife, Sarah. He mourned her loss and purchased a field in the promised land to bury his dead, as it said, by faith. Then he got his son a bride who would come to him in the promised land to steer his son in the direction that he knew God had in store for him and for their descendants and did that all by faith. So there were some ups and there were some downs in Abraham's story, weren't there? And these ups and downs, these victories and failures didn't always happen seemingly in a proper linear, perfectly upward trajectory, did they? If that understanding of Abraham's growth and change, with that understanding, this this not always so pristine progress of progressive sanctification, if that sounds familiar, 
It's because we're all on that same kind of a path. Does that make sense? Abraham's path to sanctification was not perfect. And neither is ours. Neither is ours. As we look into the big picture of the life of Abraham today, we need to see ourselves as well. Because Abraham is much like we are. And, and we like him. We're created beings. We're made in the image of God. We were lost and dead in our trespasses and sins. We're saved by grace through faith in the fulfillment of God's promised Savior. Righteousness is counted to us. And it's the righteousness of Christ. It's his righteousness. And now we're pursuing godliness. We're pursuing Christ-likeness in these bodies of flesh. Waging a war against sin that we could not win on our own. Amen? We couldn't win that on our own. But we've been promised victory. We've been promised final glory by the same God who promised Eve that her seed was going to crush the head of our enemy, the serpent. And I'm going to get ahead of myself here, but who does it sound like? Uh, who, who is who's the hero of the story of Abraham? We know that God is the hero of that story, right? God is the hero of the story of Abraham. This series was titled, The Faithfulness of God in the Life of Abraham. And if God was the hero of Abraham's story, and if I'm just like Abraham in all the ways that were mentioned, who is and who will be, who will be the hero of my story? Who's the hero of your story? Who's that hero going to be? It has to be God. We'd say through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And even bigger than my story, even bigger than your story, even bigger than Abraham's story, is God's story. God's story. And all, all of his creation, all people are a part of that story. But before we finish that thought, let's see the rest of Abraham's story. So we're in Genesis 25. We're going to read here through uh, his earthly end, starting at verse 1. And this first phrase might be surprising. After the death of Sarah, Genesis 25, 1, Abraham took another wife. And the word another in this contest signifies uh, that this wife was not held in the same honor as Sarah. Uh, Abraham didn't, quote unquote, take a wife. He took, it says, another wife, whose name was Keturah, it says. And this may have occurred prior to or after uh, Isaac and Rebekah were married, though it certainly occurred after Sarah's death. So this isn't the same thing as Hagar, but it's also not the same thing as Sarah, if that makes sense. Uh, and these situations can be challenging sometimes, can't they? Uh, when grown children say goodbye to their mother or father after their passing, after some time passes then, maybe they see their parent, their surviving parent, marry another I've not personally experienced that, but there certainly has to be some sort of mental adjustment to whatever that new normal would be. And sometimes that can be tough. Generally speaking, though, when you are the promised son and sole heir born to your 100-year-old father, who's now about 140 years old, you don't expect that marriage to be very fruitful. And yet, verse 2, 
She, Keturah, bore him Abraham, Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Six boys. Six boys. 140-year-old Abraham. Six boys. 140 and counting, right? That didn't all happen in one year. And nations would come from these boys. Verse 3, Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Latushim, and Leomim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanhok, Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Now what to do with all these extra six boys? <laughs> and, and where might we expect to see more strife and confusion here? We might, we might expect that, right? Uh, we had some issue with just Isaac and Ishmael. Now add six more. We might expect to see some friction there. But there doesn't seem to be any mention of strife at all. Almost as if Keturah and the boys knew all along what the plan was and what their place was in this family. So unlike Ishmael, it doesn't seem as though the sons of Keturah were ever uh, under the impression that they'd gotten the rug pulled out from under them like they knew ahead of time. It says in verse 5, it gives us evidence of this, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Keturah and Hagar, those are his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. Okay, so Abraham gave seven of his sons, Ishmael and those then six sons. He gave them uh, gifts to get him started and told them, now you go your own way. You go out of this land and go out of here. Okay, they were not to stay in the land that God had promised to Isaac and to his descendants. And it seems as though at this point, uh, there were no complaints. Everybody seems to have gone with their gift willingly. So, now it's time for Abraham's sojourning to end. Verse 7. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life. 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. God promised him in Genesis 15, 15, it said this, As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. Promise fulfilled. He died in a good old age, an old man, it says, full of years, and was gathered to his people. And that's just a figure of speech. Uh, Gathered to his people just means that he joined together with his family that had preceded him to the grave. Okay, he is now in the grave as well with them. Think of the word Sheol that we see throughout scriptures representing the grave. Okay, verse 9. Isaac, who now would have been 75 years old about, and Ishmael, who would have been by this time about 88 years old. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, they came together there and buried him in the cave of Machpelah. They came together to honor Abraham. And that cave, remember, is in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre. And this is in here to remind us, verse 10, that this is the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with 
Sarah, his wife, <laughs> his wife. And then in verse 11, verse 11, we have the big transfer. This, this account from Genesis 12 to this point has been the, the story of Abraham, the faithfulness of God and the life of Abraham. And now this transfer comes. After the death of Abraham, God blessed whom? Isaac, his son. In this context of all these details, of all the other sons, of all the other descendants, the word of God reiterates who the son of the promise is. And it never gives a father-son blessing here like we've seen other places in Genesis. We see Isaac blessing Jacob, even accidentally so. We see Jacob blessing those 12 tribes at the end of Genesis. It doesn't give us any kind of explanation of Abraham doing that for Isaac. But he didn't have to because God had already chosen to do so. Does that make sense? So that's good enough for us to, to see this say, God blessed Isaac, his son. God had given this blessing already. And it says, Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. Remember, he went back there to where he met and was married to Rebecca. Now, so far today, <laughs> we've seen the genealogy of these other six sons of Abraham, their descendants, and then they're, they're out of the picture. Then we see Abraham pass, and the mantle of this grand narrative officially transferred, passed on to Isaac. So we probably expect to see his story get going, right? Uh, but wait, you knew I was setting you up for that, but wait, we need to see something else take place first. Uh, we've been informed that Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, sorry, was not for the sons of Keturah, and it's also not for the son of Hagar. So verse 12. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. Remember back in Genesis 16.10, Hagar was promised that a multitude would come through Ishmael. And so here they come. Verse 13. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Now, this is when everybody's glad that I'm, I'm the one reading, right? All these names come up. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Timah, Jetur, Nathish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names, by their villages and by their encampments. It says 12 princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. Okay, so giving his years in this verse... And the time of his death, it concludes, officially, concludes his narrative. That's the literary tool that's used in this book. So he was given the, these are the generations of line to open his story. And now we've already heard of his death. So this little chunk here, this passage is another reiteration, a reemphasis that this story is not Ishmael's story. God's covenant promise was not Ishmael's to inherit. It says in verse 18, they, so the descendants of Ishmael, they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. And that's kind of a tricky statement there, but that statement gives confirmation that the descendants of Ishmael lived in a different place 
okay, than the sons of the descendants of Isaac. And then also, after him, Jacob. So they kept their distance. They didn't live together. They were separate from each other. But they were around them. Okay? They weren't on the other side of the planet. They were close enough to cause some trouble every once in a while. And we know from from other parts of the Old Testament that the sons, the descendants of Ishmael, and even the six sons of Keturah, maybe you uh, heard the name in there, Midian. You think of the Midianites. Uh, that one might be most familiar to us. These descendants started out basically in northern Arabia, northern and western Arabia, but then they, as they grew, their peoples grew, they migrated and moved up and down the Jordan uh, Valley on the east side of the Jordan River. I'm doing it from the wrong perspective. I'm doing it from my perspective over here. But they also lived over closer to Egypt. And so you have Israel, the Mediterranean Sea, Israel, and then all these descendants basically swooping right around Israel. How interesting that they would all be there. No problem, right? What could go wrong? Now, uh, one important thing to note in this passage is, is that literary, literary structure that was used. Uh, what did we learn in the beginning? And what did we learn in the end of this passage? Uh, first, we learned about the sons of Keturah and their descendants. What did we learn about them? They're Abraham's sons, but they aren't inheriting the covenant promises. Right? That was the beginning. And in the end of this passage, we learned about the descendants of Ishmael. And we were reminded, uh, these, this was Abraham's son, but he was not to inherit the covenant promises. So these two similar statements are meant to emphasize what's actually in the middle of this passage. Does that make sense? You have these sons of Abraham not inheriting. You have this son of Abraham not inheriting. But then what's in the middle? That's the part that we're supposed to really see, the part that was supposed to be emphasized to us. And what is the meat in the middle of these slices of bread? God blessed Isaac. God blessed Isaac. Who was the promised son? Isaac. Who would inherit the covenant promises? Isaac. And so to continue to follow the gracious work of God, to bring about the promises of God, to continue learning that story, we must follow the narrative of Isaac. Not Keturah's sons, not Ishmael, but Isaac. And realize uh, what I just said has been and is the cause of a lot of hostility and conflict in the world, even today, right? Uh, but it's true. It's true. It's at this point, right where we are right now, in the Bible, just right here in Genesis 25, uh, with other modifications to what we've already covered along the way. But it's at this point that approximately 1.8 billion Muslim people in the world today take a detour. There's this divergence at this point. Why is that? Who's the son of the promise? That's the question. This says, Isaac... They would believe it is Ishmael. And there's the 12 princes right there. And you follow that genealogy, which they do. Okay? And, and so as we, remember, as we are looking for the story of God's plan, 
We are looking at his narrative. We know from this text we have to follow the story of Isaac. But they do not. They follow the story of Ishmael. That's a, that's a big conflict, isn't it? And we might think it hard to prove. That's not a conflict that you can just resolve. It happened a long time ago. And it's what people believe about something that happened a long time ago. Probably something that would take the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to resolve. That's kind of where I think that's going to have to settle. Though the debate itself is not confusing. The debate itself is not confusing, especially for Christians. And for one simple yet profound reason. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah, right? And the Savior of the world was buried after he died, which people argue about that, right? He died, he was buried, and then what did he do? He rose from the dead. Case closed. He is exactly who he said he is. He is God, the Son, the Messiah, and our Savior. So you don't know how we can be sure that Isaac was the son of the promise? Jesus rose from the dead. That's how we know. But but let's take a step back, though, and understand uh, the Jews who do not believe that Christ is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Messiah, they're kind of still waiting, aren't they? Not kind of, they are. And so that debate right there is hotly contested. We know. <laughs> We've seen it come to be. It is not disputable. Now, after that uh, little sidetrack, but important sidetrack, okay? We need to take a step back from Abraham's life story and find it, Abraham's story, in the midst of the grand narrative, the grand story of all of Scripture. Uh, would you agree with me that even as important as Abraham is to the story of Scripture, that the Bible isn't all about him? It's not about him. Uh, we could cut Abraham some slack, right, along the way here, if we, if we thought that way. God specifically did call him out of Ur and Haran. God talked to him directly on more than one occasion. God visited him and, and ate at one of his tents. God came and ate with him. How cool is that? We could see how uh, he might think that he's a pretty special guy. Abraham might think he's a pretty special guy. But now, and where's Abraham right now? In the presence of the Lord. Now in heaven, Abraham must be humbled and thrilled that he got to be included, included in the grand story of God, the way that he was included. And all of that by the grace of God. Because, you see, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Are you ready for the story? This is the grand narrative. This is the story. And on the sixth day of creation, God made man perfect in innocence. And the man and his wife were made in the image of God. They were given responsibility to represent God by having dominion over the earth, given the command to be fruitful and multiply and enjoy the Lord forever. And yet by their choice, after being tempted to desire their own lordship, they sinned. And the curse immediately followed. Man grew so wicked that God had to judge the earth, killing all of the image bearers in judgment except for eight. No one his family. And God then gave them similar commands when they came off of the ark, namely to be fruitful and multiply and to spread over all the earth. But in their sin, they also disobeyed 
and generations later, they tried to make a name for themselves. The Tower of Babel, remember? They tried to make a name for themselves so that they wouldn't have to obey God. They didn't want to have to obey him. And God then intervened again and, and spread them out by himself, giving them different languages, creating people groups who moved over uh, different regions of the earth, spreading throughout the world as, as he'd commanded them to do. Uh, what would become of man then? in his sinful condition, always needing God to intervene, incapable of righteousness on our own account. What would become of man? But then God chose a man, which we've seen here in the last several chapters, from which to make a new nation, Abraham. And this people group that came through him, the Jewish people, would be a nation that should have pointed the world to their creator, God. God caused this nation to come into existence. He freed them from bondage in the land of Egypt and gave them the promised land, the nation of Israel, a place of blessing where the world had to pass by and surely see that God was good to his people. But Israel failed. God graciously saved so many of them, including, of course, King David, promising him that uh, one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever. And we know who that descendant is. But in the end, Israel proved that man could not successfully keep God's law. Man could not be righteous. And eventually then, at the right time, right at the time of God's design, of his will, the blessing that was promised to the nations through the seed of Abraham would come. Israel could not solve their own problem. Mankind could not be righteous before God, but God himself could do it. Amen? And so God himself came down, took on flesh, and dwelt amongst his creation. Jesus Christ, God the Son, born from the womb of a young virgin woman named Mary, lives a sinless, righteous life that no other man has ever or could ever live. And by God's design, by God's decree, the Christ, Jesus Messiah, died. He died the death that we deserve. The death that Abraham deserved. Christ took the wrath of God that we deserve. The judgment for our sin was placed on him at the cross. And in his death, our redemption was secured, our salvation purchased, our sins washed away for all those who repent and call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He was buried according to prophecy, and on Sunday morning he rose from the dead. Jesus defeated death. He proved that he is exactly who he says he is and showed all those who are his followers, us, what will also happen to us at that day. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. There's more to come. Praise God. And Jesus then, after his resurrection, instructed his disciples, the apostles, and not long after that, ascended into heaven. We celebrated Ascension Day this week. He ascended into heaven where he presently serves us by interceding on our behalf at the right hand of God the Father, even today. Isn't that amazing? If Satan were to accuse us before God today, Jesus is there to intercede for us on our behalf and say, no, they're mine. 
My blood has covered their sin. That's his ministry right now. Right now. And he's doing that while we, we, the church, a people chosen by God and consisting of people from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation, we serve together, united as his body, bringing glory to him by making disciples while we wait, awaiting his glorious return, awaiting his rule and reign, when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And realize that means if every knee and every tongue, some to their damnation and some to everlasting joy in the presence of God. So as we say that, we can't go on before we, we ask this. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you put your faith in him? Have you repented of your sin and believed in his finished work, the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross? If you will confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. Amen? Everyone. But we think about this now. We often think about how God is a part of our story. But you know, it's true. Every single human being that has ever lived or who will ever live are really a part of God's story. Even those who reject him will one day bow the knee. And in one way or another, all will bring glory to God. And we shouldn't get cocky or excited about the judgment there, right? It ought to swell our hearts up in compassion to go and to share the gospel, to pray for repentance. And we think about all of this. We think about Abraham's story that we've read through. And we ask this again, who is the hero of Abraham's story? Well, we know God is. God's the hero. And to whom does Abraham's story point us? Who does the whole narrative of Scripture point us to? We look at this, it's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the climax of Scripture. He is the epicenter. He is the main character of all history. It's Jesus Christ. And so then, church, we have to ask ourselves, what does our story point to? Who does our story point to? And I'm asking us this both individually and corporately, collectively as a church. We have to ask it from both perspectives. What is my story point to? If Abraham, a man made in the image of God and saved by the grace of God through the blood of Christ, just like me, if his story points forward to Christ, then shouldn't my story point to him as well? And then corporately, who does our church point to? Who is our church for? And what or who are we to be known for? May it be true of us that when anybody in this town thinks of First Baptist Church in Mount Pleasant, they know what we're about. Jesus Christ and his gospel to the glory of God the Father. That's what it's about. That's what we're to be about. May we be known for that very thing. 
and praise God for it. Who is our head? Who is the church's head? It's Jesus Christ. And if Israel, from the Old Testament, pointed the world forward to its need of a Messiah, its need of a Savior, of a Savior, um, a Savior, let us not forget the church's call to point the world to its need for a Savior. That's what God's put us here for and to do. Praise God that he has graciously made me, made you, and made us, the church, part of his victorious story. That's cause for worship. That's cause for worship. It's not about me, it's about him. And his story is way bigger and better than my story could ever be. How privileged are we that we get to be a part of his story as members of the body of Christ? That is a great grace that he's given to us. And so, as Paul said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, uh, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, the changing of our thinking, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what's good and acceptable and perfect. And listen to our Christ-centered story and purpose from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says this, So we are always of good courage. When it's our story, sometimes that courage can wane, can't it? But God is not going to lose this battle. His story is a victorious story, and so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, and here's the big thing right here, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. Dead or alive, I want to be pleasing to God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Our purpose, we are not commending ourselves to you again by giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. For we are beside ourselves. If we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ, understanding where we are in his story will give us a greater love for Christ, won't it? Our love for Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. It's not about my story. I've died. And he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ that way, according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, 
not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, the gospel. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. What's our story? What are we here for? We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal to the world through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you're in Christ today, that's your story. How awesome is that? That's your story. And now I would imagine, just like me, it's safe to assume that, like Abraham, our stories are a little more zigzaggy with its ups and downs, with its ebbs and flows, as we also progressively grow in our sanctification, in our Christ-likeness and godliness. Uh, But this is what God gave for us to do. This mission is what God gave for us to do for his glory and our joy. Our joy. And he has promised, he has promised to move us forward in our sanctification and work in this grand story. God's promised it's going to happen. If anything that we've learned from Genesis 12 through 25, it's that God keeps his promises. He's in control. He is sovereign over all that. He's going to do it. And in the end, in the end, we're talking a lot about stories. In the end, Jesus Christ, he is the end. It's all about him. He is the final point. He is our savior. He's our example. He's the one we follow. He's our inheritance. He's our prize. He is our king and our Lord. Jesus is the end of this grand narrative. It's God's glory. So, we may have finished the story of Abraham today. But remember, Jesus is the end of the story. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much. There's so many things that we can learn as we look at your uh, work, your faithfulness, your sovereignty. As we see and as we saw how you um, worked in the life of Abraham. And not just for Abraham, but for the birth of a nation. And ultimately for the birth of your son. So that we could be born again and bring you honor and glory and praise. So I pray, Lord, that as we as we maybe take all of the things that we've learned and things that we've thought about as we've gone through these uh, chapters in the book of Genesis, God, uh, may we step away from this having a much bigger view of who you are, uh, a biblical view of your great love with which you have loved us. And Lord, a better understanding of how we fit into the grand story of all history. And Lord, through that, that we would worship you in your holiness and your greatness and your goodness to us. And Lord, that we would be all in in being a part of your story. That we would uh, be your ambassadors on this earth. That we, as your church, would bring glory to your name. And much in so doing by pointing people 
to Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. And God, we thank you that that will be for our joy and for your glory for all time. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.